Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Coming to the end of this series, 1 Peter, what a journey this has been. Oh, it's been so encouraging. Now this morning in 1 Peter 5, Peter's going to tell us how churches should be structured, how churches should be organized, how they should be led. And you might be wondering, why do I need to hear how churches should be structured? Why do I need to understand how churches should be led? And the answer to that question is, it's because of the importance that the church has in God's overall plan. Think of what we read in the New Testament. Here's just a couple scriptures. For example, what did Jesus say he would build that the gates of hell would not be able to stand against? The church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Who did Paul say that Jesus loved and gave himself for? It's the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Who is Jesus the head of? It's the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. What does Paul say is the pillar and ground of the truth? It's the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. For whom did God appoint apostles and prophets and teachers? The church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. When Paul had a message that he wanted to send to the believers in Corinth, who did he send it to? The church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Who will God's glory shine through? For all generations, forever and ever. Paul said, through Jesus Christ and the church. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The massive importance that the church has in God's plan throughout history. Now, the church is not a building. Don't think all those verses were about a building. The, the universal church is made up of all the believers saved through Jesus from Adam all the way through until Jesus comes back again from all around the globe. That's the universal church. And God's plan is for every believer to be part of a local church. Every believer. Now, what if you're in a city where there is no church, which happens in this part of the world? Well, if you're in a city where there is no church, then you are the seed of a future church. And God wants you to start praying, to start working, to see a church planted in that city because God wants every believer, we need to be in that environment of church life as described in the New Testament. That's how important church is and that's why it's important that we all understand how churches should be structured, how they should be organized, how they should be led, and what our role is in that, the rest of us, and that's what Peter tells us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at what he says. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, here he quotes from the Old Testament, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's start with this first question now. How are churches to be structured? Remember, Peter's writing this letter to churches that were in what's in modern-day Turkey today. And so I looked at the map. This is about 800 kilometers east to west, 400 kilometers roughly north to south. So this is a massive area, and Peter's writing this letter to all the churches that are in that region. You can see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Massive region. And in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, we can see that Peter is assuming that all the churches in that region have elders. Read chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is what Peter's assuming. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. He's not expecting that anybody's going to read this letter and say, what are elders? What elders? They're going to say, that's right, we got elders. Elders, listen, this part's for you, okay? So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So all the churches reading this letter in what's modern-day Turkey had elders. And when we read the rest of the New Testament, what we find, as best as we can see, every church that we hear described in any detail had a team, a plurality of elders. It's not just one senior pastor who's leading everything. There's a team of elders, so there's accountability. That's what we see throughout the New Testament. So who are these elders? It's not just older people, because in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we see Paul gives lists of spiritual qualifications that the elders should have. So in, in these chapters, Paul says that elders should be spiritually mature. They should be above reproach. That doesn't mean they're sinless, but it means that they are growing in holiness Paul says they need to understand God's word. They need to be able to teach God's word because when the church gathers to hear God's word preached and taught, it's the elders who do that. Elders or elders in training are the ones who are doing that kind of teaching and preaching here be Friday mornings. And Paul says that elders are to be husbands of one wife and they are to lead their households well, which shows that elders are to be men. And that if they are married, then they are to be husbands of one wife, which means they love their wives. They care for their wives. They lay their lives down for their wives like Christ laid down his life for the church. And if they have children, it means that they love their children, care for their children, teach their children about Jesus, discipline their children. Their homes are, are orderly. Okay, So that's what Paul's talking about. They're to be husband of one wife, leading their homes, which means that elders should be men. Now, why would God say that elders should be men? And I can't find any reason why in the Bible. I don't think God gives us a reason. We just know that this is what he, what he wants us to do. There's no place given in terms of no reason for why. It's not 
because women are less spiritual or less holy or less stable or less wise. No, God is very clear in the scriptures that men and women are absolutely equal, equally saved, equally loved, equally gifted. And yet God, for some reason, has chosen to have men be the leaders in their homes and leaders in, in the church. Now, our, our culture has lots of different opinions on this, and, and this might be a painful thought for you to consider. So let me remind you of the ballroom illustration I used a few weeks ago. Remember we were talking about marriage in 1 Peter 3? So think about a couple who are very gifted in ballroom dancing. Okay, in ballroom dancing, the man and the woman have different roles, right? The man's role is to lead, take the lead to initiate the steps, right? Men, any, any ballroom dancers here? I'm definitely not going to volunteer for that one, but you can see it. It's beautiful when you see it, when it's working. So the, the man has a different role than the woman. He initiates the steps and leads the steps, and the woman has a different role than the man. She follows his lead. She follows the steps, right? Now, think about the picture, though, of ballroom dancing. The man is not feeling arrogant or superior, nor is the woman feeling oppressed or inferior at all. Different roles, but the man and the woman are equally vital to the dance, equally important to the dance. They have equal joy in the dance, but they don't have the same roles in the dance. They have different roles, but the result is freedom and harmony and beauty, isn't it? Okay, now men, that's what your marriage should look like right? Elders, future elders, that's what church should look like. Women should thrive and blossom under leadership of godly men. We're here to lay our lives down for our wives, Ephesians 5. We're to lay our lives down for the church. Women should thrive and blossom in that kind of a setting. So churches should be led by a plurality of men elders. Now, how does that work here at Grace Church? Okay, we started four years ago with one elder, that was me, and then two guys who we formed a steering team, one, one wonderful man from the on-island ECC church and, and then one from the what's now called New Life Church, the off-island um, church. So there was three of us, we were a steering team, but since then we've been moving towards elders. We weren't able to put elders in place yet. That takes some time. But we are getting closer and closer to transitioning from a steering team to being a full elder team. We brought Pastor Ben on last summer. What an amazing gift the Smiths have been to us. And so now there's two elders and we're moving in that direction. So that's where we're going. But I want to tell you, we need more elders. We need more elders. We are praying that God is going to raise up more elders for Grace Church. And we want elders from all different nations. We're asking God to raise up qualified elders from India, from Pakistan, from Nigeria, from Kenya, from Mexico, from Guatemala, from Romania, from all different nations. We're praying for that. And there's no qualifications in terms of like how much money you're supposed to make in order to be an elder. Nothing of that in the Bible. No qualifications about what job status you have. Nothing of that in the Bible. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, and you'll see the qualifications that are there and that aren't there. So we're praying. We are praying, God, raise up more elders. In fact, I'm praying that this morning through this message 
God is gonna stir some of your hearts. Men, you'll be stirred. It's like, I would love to be an elder. Oh God, if you would gift me and call me to do that, I would love to do that. I'm praying that God is gonna stir some of your hearts. In fact, as I was praying about this earlier this morning, I think there's gonna be some of you who are going to be re-stirred in that in your hearts. Maybe that's been there in the past and you have set that aside for some reason. And I think there's some of you men where God is going to re-stir that calling to your heart. And if so, come talk to me afterwards. Now, what do you do if God stirs in your heart that if God would gift me, Lord, if you would, I would love to be an elder. What do you do? Well, you become a member of the church. You become part of a home group and share with that home group leader. I just want to serve the people and shepherd your people and help you in any way that I possibly can with this home group. And then you, you just serve and, and love people and, and, and let the home group leader know if, if I could become a home group leader, I might even be praying about being an elder. So as God confirms your giftings and your calling, that home group leader will see that, the, the elders will see that. You'll move towards planting out, branching out as a new home group. Because when you lead a home group, then we can see this, this future elder candidate, he's, he's shepherding the flock. He's caring for these people. They're thriving under his leadership. And then we would talk more about moving towards being an elder. So that's the step. That's where we're going. But again, I'm praying that this morning, God is going to call some of you to eldership. And I'm praying that you will say, yes, yes. Okay, so here we go. And in this passage, what Peter does is he urges elders to shepherd the flock. And in verse one, I love verse one, he tells the elders who are reading this why they should listen to him and shepherd the flock. Look at verse one. We'll read verse one in the beginning of verse two. And look at these reasons why they should listen to him. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, before we look at the reasons in verse one, let's be clear on what shepherding the flock means. It's a metaphor, right? Shepherd, sheep. So to shepherd the flock would mean loving and caring for the sheep. It would mean knowing the sheep. Every single person is known. It would mean feeding the sheep from the green pastures of God's word. It would mean leading the sheep through the living waters of just more of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It would mean protecting the sheep from wolves who might bring false teaching. It would mean pursuing those sheep who are wandering away, bah, you know, wandering away and going after them, okay? It would mean seeking to seek and save lost sheep, Somehow this metaphor breaks down, but it, training the sheep to help you go and win lost sheep. But it means we're, there's, there's more sheep that are not of this fold yet. We want to reach out to more sheep. So that's all that's involved in shepherding the flock. And now notice the three reasons in verse 1 that Peter gives for why these elders should listen to him and shepherd the flock. First reason, it's because he's a fellow elder. Did you see that? I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter knows what it means to be an elder. He's saying, brothers, I am an elder. I know how hard it can be to confront sin. I know how hard it can be to prepare teaching for the, for the flock. I know how hard it can be to labor in prayer. I know that it can be hard to pour your, your life out for people. I know, 
brothers, and I urge you, shepherd the flock. Feel the power of that? Second reason, it's because he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So Peter is saying, brothers, I saw Jesus suffering. I saw him. I saw how he loved the flock, how he was willing to die to pay for the sins of the flock. I saw how he loved the flock. So brothers, shepherd the flock. Feel the power of that? Then third, it's because he's a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. At the end of history, Jesus will be revealed in all of his glory. This has been a theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. This is our living hope, revealed in all of his glory. But Peter has already seen glimpses of this glory revealed, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was shining with glory. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he was ablaze with glory. Peter has already seen. He's already been a partaker of this glory that's going to be revealed. So what Peter would say to the elders is, brothers, I have seen Jesus' glory. I have felt Jesus' glory. He is worth it all. He's worth all the work. So for the glory of Jesus, brothers, I urge you, shepherd the flock. So here's three reasons. I think at the end of these three, the elders are all going to be like sitting forward on the edge of their seats like saying, okay, brother, give it to us. We want to listen. What are you calling us to do? Because Peter is a fellow elder, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and he's a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Okay, so then how should elders shepherd the flock? Peter explains in verses 2 and 3, but start in verse 1 so you get the whole flow of thoughts. So verse 1 again. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now notice that shepherding the flock involves oversight, That means leadership. So elders are to nurture and love and care for the flock, yes, but elders are also to lead the flock. Now what that is about is that God has a plan for each church in terms of how is this church supposed to advance the gospel? How is this church supposed to preach the good news? How is this church supposed to raise up people who can share the good news? How is this church supposed to plant churches? Where should they plant churches? God has a unique plan for each individual church church and the elders are to seek God for that direction, for that vision, and then lead the body on mission. It's like we're here to take that mountain. Sheep, I guess sheep don't really, it's like soldiers are to take that mountain. Here's where we're going, okay? So that's what elders are to do. So Peter's calling elders to shepherd and give oversight to the flock. And then in the rest of verses two and three, Peter explains how they should do that, how elders should and how they should not shepherd the flock. First, halfway through verse two, elders should shepherd the flock 
They should give oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. In other words, elders should want to shepherd the flock, to give oversight. Elders should have a longing in their heart to do this. No one should be an elder because he thinks he's supposed to or just because there's a need. Not at all. Elders should be elders because they love shepherding the flock. They love glorifying God in that way. God has called them. He's put it in their hearts. That's what they are supposed to do because God has called them and because it's in their hearts. So that's the first way, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Second, also in verse 2, he says we should shepherd the flock not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now that, that phrase shameful gain means some kind of greediness, probably regarding money. It's probably a, a money greediness here. And see, elders are responsible for the church funds, for how they are dispersed. And so it's possible that an elder would want to become an elder so that he could steal some money, I suppose, is, is what's going on here. Now also, some elders are paid like Pastor Ben and me, we are, this is our full-time work. This is what we do for work. But see, money should never be what motivates elders to do the work. Elders should have this passion so strong in their heart that they would do it whether they get paid for it or not. Church stops. Our church gets shut down in some way. As God gives me grace, I'm just going to keep eldering somehow get another job, do something else, but it's in my heart, it's in Pastor Ben's heart, so that's what pastors should be doing, that's what elders should be feeling. It's like, we are here to shepherd the flock. That's what God's called us to be. So not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Third, verse three. He says we should shepherd the flock, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So no elder should want to be an elder because I, I just love I just love telling people what to do and having them have to do it. I just love that. Ah, let's, let's think about another position for you. Like, anyway, we'll find something to be really humbling. Uh, so that's, that's not what's in elders' hearts. What elders want to do is, I just want to be an example to the flock. I want to live a godly life, love them, lead, but I want to be an example first and foremost. So elders should be examples of men who worship God. Men of worship, men who study God's word. Whether they're paid full-time or whether they have other jobs and they're carving out time outside of that, passion to study God's word, devotion to prayer, examples of battling sin, examples of caring for his wife, children, loving God's people, training and equipping God's people, reaching out to the lost, sharing the gospel, working hard at their job, providing for the family, suffering for the gospel. The list just goes on and on. Elders shouldn't want to domineer. Elders should want to be an example. That's what Peter tells us here. Now, Peter knows that this kind of work isn't easy. He is an elder, after all. And so he wants to give the elders an additional powerful reason which will fuel them and motivate them to be elders. And so let's ask, how does Peter motivate the elders to do this? And look at what he says in verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive 
the unfading crown of glory. When elders shepherd the flock and give oversight willingly and eagerly and as examples to the flock, when Jesus returns, he will give them, each of them, the unfading crown of glory. Now, what does that mean? It means that when Jesus comes back, you are going to have your heart, and this is true for all of us, the more faithful we each are to our call, whether it's elder or whatever else, the more faithful, the more obedient we are to what God has called us to do, the more joy we will have in the presence of Jesus forever. Remember last week we talked about the fact that every saved person's heart is going to be full of joy in heaven. But the more obedient we are now, the, the larger capacity we have for that joy. And so elders, as you shepherd the flock, as you give oversight, willingly, eagerly, as an example, the more faithful you are to that call, the more joy you will have in Jesus' glory forever. So God is going to give, the chief shepherd, Jesus, is going to give faithful, sacrificial, loving, serving elders the crown of glory. Now, that doesn't, like I said, it doesn't just motivate elders. This is what's true for all of us. Let that motivate you. It's, it's an amazing thing to think that the way you live your life today can increase the joy you have in Jesus forever. It's an amazing thing. That makes today really, really important. Now, don't think that your obedience to the call now is somehow earning something more from Jesus in heaven. It's not a matter of earning. It's because Jesus died and paid for your sins on the cross and it's for that reason alone that God then in his mercy promises to reward your undeserving obedience with more joy in Jesus forever. It's all by grace, it's all by mercy, but the way we live now can increase our joy in Christ forever by God's mercy because of the cross alone. So put that all together. Now, that's the motivation. So powerful. So elders, elders in training, those whose hearts are being stirred, and everyone in terms of what God's called you to do. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory and have that joy forever. Okay, that brings us to verse 5. In verse 5, Peter shifts from talking to elders to talking to everybody. And the reason he does this is that to have a, a, a healthy church that's effectively advancing the gospel and planting churches, it's not enough to have strong, loving, humble elders. Things need to be true of the rest of us. So what needs to be true of the rest of us? Peter talks about that in verse 5. What should everyone else do? Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another for, is the reason, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So two commands here in this verse. First, Peter calls those who are younger to be subject to the elders. Now, Peter does not say those who are younger spiritually. He just says those who are younger. And I think the most natural way to understand that is he's talking about being younger in age. He's talking about just those who are younger in age. Now, 
why would age be important? Why single out the younger as those who especially need to be subject to the elders? And what the ESV study Bible said made sense to me. Here's, here's what they said. Quote, you who are younger, close quote, probably means younger members of the congregation who are more likely to be headstrong and resistant to leadership. Now, that's not true for all of you who are young, okay? But young people sometimes can be resistant to leadership. I know, I was there. I, I was one of those a long time ago. Um, so that's what I think Peter's talking about here. But, but it's not just the younger, though, who need to be in subjection to the elders. It's the whole church body. And I say that because of Hebrews 13, 17, where that is stated explicitly. Obey your leaders, the author of Hebrews says, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Elders, future possible elders, that's a sobering truth. We will give an account to the Lord Jesus for his flock, for every member in the flock. But now what does it mean to be subject to the elders? This can be very much misunderstood and abused. It does not mean following the elders into sin because you have a higher allegiance to this chief shepherd, right? So if elders, if you're at a church where elders start to teach that Jesus was not fully God, or if the elders start to teach that something that the Bible clearly says is sin, and the elders say, well, that's not really sin, then you should not follow their lead. You should find another church. So your following the elders is under their following of Jesus and their, their following of, of the scriptures. So it doesn't mean following elders into sin. But now what if, what if you see the elders and they want to lead the church in this direction? It's not a matter of biblical right or wrong or black and white. It's they, they want to move in this direction and, and you're, you think there might be a, a wiser way to go. Like let's say the elders here are, are talking about planting a church on Ream Island. You're thinking, well, that would be good, but I just feel like there's a huge need in Saudiot Island. We need, need, need church planted there. So what should you do if the elders are moving in one direction? You're thinking, I'm not so sure that's wise. You, sh you should talk to the elders. Go to the elders humbly and share, brothers, here's what I'm thinking. I mean, what about this? What about this? What about this? What you shouldn't do is tell everybody else, you know what the elders are thinking? Can you, can you believe that? I mean, what, what are they thinking? To, to be, because Paul has surprisingly strong words about that sort of thing. He calls it divisive. Look at uh, Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, and Romans 16, I think it is. I'm not sure which verses, but Romans 16. Paul has very strong words. That, that's divisive. So don't do that. Go right to the elders. And I tell you, we elders need your thoughts. There's been numerous times in the history of this church where non-elders, people just from the congregation, have raised questions and the elders have thought, uh, they're right, we need to change this. And it was changed. So see, God has not given the elders all the wisdom that we need. He wants us to be humbled. He will give us some wisdom from you. So if you have a thought or a question, don't say, oh, well, they're the elders, I'm sure I'm wrong. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. That might be exactly what the elders need. The Holy Spirit might have given that to you to humble us, to teach us, to correct us, and we will pray and we will make that correction. Does that make sense? Okay, but now, what if 
you share your concerns about Remile and Sadiat, and the elders think and pray and ponder and say, well, no, we want to end up planting in Sadiat, maybe, but we think Rim is where we should start now. What should you do in that case if the elders disagree with you? Well, what you should do is you should submit to them. It's not a matter of black and white, Bible right or wrong. It's just a matter of, okay, it's a matter of wisdom. I'm going to assume that God's led through them, and I'm going to be in unity with them. I'm going to be behind this uh, for the sake of Christ's glory and the unity of the church. This is how the elders function. So, example, I am subject to the other elders. Let's say I bring a proposal to the elders and say, brothers, I think we should do this. Here's all the reasons, this, this, and this. This would be so awesome. And, and we talk and pray. And, and, um, and, and what if they say, uh, we don't think we should do that? Then what do I do? I say, okay. I, I think I was, I guess I must have been wrong. And, and no one should ever hear from me, I didn't vote for that. Or I told, they, should, they didn't agree with me. No, I, I would say to people, here's what we decided. We decided to do this because we are a unity together. Does that make sense? This is how it functions. It takes humility, it takes trust in the Lord, and it glorifies Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So that's what it means to be subject to the elders. Now let me, sometimes, some churches have a culture like where elders will tell you who to marry or tell you what kind of job you should or shouldn't take or where you should move to. No, that's completely wrong. Elders can give you counsel, but that is your decision, right? God will give you the wisdom you need for your personal decisions. So elders don't manage, micromanage the details of people's lives. We shepherd the flock. We give oversight. That's what we do. Okay, so first Peter calls us to be subject to the elders. Then he calls us to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another because that's what we need to be subject to others, right? It takes humility. Look at verse 5 again. We'll see this emphasis on humility. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why do we need to clothe ourselves with humility? It's because our sin natures are not humility. Our sin natures are what? Pride. By nature and by choice, we're all clothed with pride. And so we need to be intentional about clothing ourselves with humility. So how can we tell if we're clothed with humility or not? I I thought of four questions, and there's lots of other ones, but these are four that that I, I thought might be helpful to think about. Ask yourself, am I maybe at least as troubled, would be the better way to put it, am I at least as troubled by my own sin as by the sin of others? Do you feel that? Whose sin am I most thinking about? Other people, or am I, am I at least as troubled by my own sin as I am by the sin of others? If I'm not as troubled about my sin as about the sin of others, I need to clothe myself with humility. Why is that? Well, it's because whose sin do I see the most? Mine. Like, I'm seeing it all day long, okay? Just all day long. It's like, oh, oh, oh. I might see one of yours. It's like, wow, wow, wow. But remember, Jesus says, take the telephone pole out of your eye so that you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye, right? Okay, so if you're ignoring the telephone pole, 
got to put on some humility, all right? Second question, am I willing to admit that I might be wrong? Well, but, but I'm not wrong. I mean, look, the, 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 wait, wait. have you ever been mistaken? Have you ever thought you were right and been mistaken? Yes. Humility is that we're willing to admit that we might be wrong. If you're not willing to admit it, you need to clothe yourself with humility. Am I willing to listen to those who disagree with me? Well, why? They're wrong. Uh, let's go back to number two again, okay? Am I willing to admit that I might be wrong? If I'm not willing to listen to those who might disagree with me, I need to clothe myself with humility. Am I laying aside my rights and my preferences to serve others? If not, I need to clothe myself with humility. Now, I think if we look at those questions, I would guess, I would hope that every single one of us would say something like, I need to be more clothed with humility. You may see some evidences of humility in your life. Praise God, beautiful work of God's grace. But none of us have this humility thing 100% perfected. If you think you do, you need to clothe yourself with humility, okay? So what would we do to clothe ourselves with humility? Three steps I would suggest that I have found helpful and I, I, I need to keep working on them. First, confess to God the sin of pride and trust that Jesus' death will completely forgive you. Oh, there's good news. If you are sensing pride in your heart now, there is good news for you because Jesus will forgive you for that pride and he will progressively cleanse you from that pride as well. So confess it to God as sin. This is sin, Father, forgive me. Pride is sin. And thank you that through Jesus' death on the cross, I can be completely forgiven for my pride. Oh, the gospel is such good news. Completely forgiven. Not trying to overcome your pride first, and that's why you get forgiven, but you come as you are with the pride in your heart saying, please forgive me, and you'll be forgiven. And then he goes to work to change your heart. That's how it works. Second, then, ask God to free you from pride and make you more humble. Pray about this. You cannot do this in your own strength, but God will do this by his strength, and so we pray and ask for his strength to do this in us. Clothe me with humility. Forgive me for my pride. Change my heart. I need the work of your Holy Spirit. Come and do this sweet work of humbling in me, I pray. And then third, pray over scriptures that show how glorious God is and how lowly you are. None of us sees how glorious God is and none of us sees how lowly we are. But it's so powerful just to say, God, you, you created the universe. You've, you've been in existence from eternity past with no beginning. You are sovereign over everything. You are perfectly good, righteous, holy, just. Just go wild with thinking about how glorious God is and just exalt him and you won't even start to scratch the surface of the very beginning of his glory. And then now, Lord, show me who I am. I mean, I'm, God loves me passionately, but I am, I am nothing before him. Not, not, I'm nothing to him. He loves me. But in terms of who I, like, who I am in myself, I'm just like, like teeny tiny. Anyway, not only, not only that, I was just praying about this this morning, not only am I like just a little created munchkin here, you know, on planet Earth, but I have shaken my fist in God's face time and time again and rebelled against him and 
dishonored his glory. So it's good to be, low, be humbled. Remember um, Luke 7:47, the woman who came to Jesus weeping at his feet, Jesus said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who was forgiven little loves little. So the reason it's, it's healthy and sweet to see how much I've sinned is because it helps me to love Jesus more, right? To exalt him more, so there's more joy in that. We're not beating ourselves up, just acknowledge the reality. And, and as you look over scriptures that exalt God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and show how lowly you are, the Holy Spirit will use those scriptures to help you be humble. That's what we do. Humility will grow in your heart. And why is this so crucial? That last line of verse five, so powerful. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you are proud, God opposes you. Now think about God. I mean, you might have a friend oppose you, that would be sad. The government oppose you, that would be hard. But that, that's, that is nothing compared to having God oppose you. God is infinite in power and sovereign over everything and has all authority. And if God is opposing you, let me just say this, you do not want to be opposed by God. And God opposes the proud. But if we're humble, then God gives us grace. What, what's grace? Grace is God's presence poured out upon you, a beautiful sense of his nearness through Jesus, the joy of the Holy Spirit filling your heart, God's love just surrounding you, God's favor on your life, God's blessing. Doesn't mean never having any trials. Through trials that God allows you to go, oh, his nearness will be sweet, his strength will be strong, his faithfulness will be evident. You want God's grace, and while God is opposed to the proud, he gives grace to the humble. That does not mean that your humility earns God's grace. By definition, you can't earn grace. So again, what does that mean? It means that because of the cross alone, God has mercifully chosen to reward your undeserving humility, because none of our humility is ever perfect. So he's chosen to reward your undeserving humility with more grace, more lavish outpourings of grace. So Grace Church elders and future elders, Peter's calling us to shepherd the flock of God, to give oversight willingly, earnestly, as examples, because when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the joy of beholding his glory in an increased measure. And Grace Church, it's all the rest of us, all of us here, be subject to the elders and clothe yourself with humility because God opposes the proud. But because of Jesus, he gives grace to the humble. Let's stand and pray. I ask, Father, for your power to come right now 
upon us. I pray for those who are feeling a very keen sense that they have an issue with pride. Thank you for touching their hearts with that. I pray, Lord, that you would show them your mercy in Christ, the forgiveness, the lavish forgiveness you hold out to them and the power to change and that they would turn to you and say, help me, humble me. I pray, Lord, for any men here who in the past have been called by you to pursue eldership and have resisted or pulled back for some reason, and I pray that you would increase your call upon them right now, that they would know this is what you're calling them to do. I pray, Lord, that you would give us at Grace Church an even greater unity together. You have blessed us with so much unity. And Lord, I pray that you would safeguard that and protect that and that you would clothe us with humility toward one another. God, I pray that you would pour out wisdom upon the elders here. We need your help, Lord. Give us wisdom by your spirit. Give us wisdom through the body. Lord, we want to do everything in this spiritually dark area that we possibly can to bring the light of Jesus' glory. And so, Lord, show us what your call is for us at Grace Church and let us lead with love and humility and boldness. Lord, we want to be a church that glorifies Christ and sees the lost saved and plants churches and walks in holiness. And so, Lord, pour this out upon us, I pray. And we praise you for the cross. We praise you for Jesus. And this is all from him and through him and for him. In Jesus' name, amen.